Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service or at our main campus services on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Well, welcome, guys. Oh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab a Bible, and then I want you to open it to the book of Romans, because guess what we're doing today? We're back in the book of Romans, week 18. Uh, look, if you're new, what's up? My name's Matt. Um, we have been doing a lot of studying so far in the book of Romans, 18 or so weeks. It's all on our podcast, though, um, and so if you ever get bored and you want to hear mediocre sermons by me, you can just go back on, on Spotify, on Apple Music, on iTunes, is that even still a thing? Whatever. Uh, and you, you can uh, hear all the sermons. It's just uh, Seacoast Grace Young Adults, and uh, you'll hear all the sermons that we've been doing. Like I said, we're already 18 weeks deep in this. We got, how many more we got? We got 26 more to go. There's 430 verses. Our plan is to study each and every single uh, verse in the entire book of Romans. So we got a lot going on. But before we hop into chapter 8, verses 12, and I was going to do all the way to 30, but today we're just doing 12 to 17, only five verses. I want you to uh, talk to some people around you. Here's your opening question. I think I got a slide for it. Think I got a slide for it. There we go. What's something you experienced that changed your life for the better? And I'll put a time frame. Let's say in the last two years. All right, 24 months, two years. Uh, Turn to a neighbor. You guys got a minute. Ready, set, go. So for me, um, mine's really simple. Obviously, I became a dad, right? Uh, my daughter, her name's Noelle, and um, I talk about her often because she's my little girl. Um, she has the coolest birthday, 2222, which is like super easy to remember, right? And my wife has a pretty easy one, too, 1212. Awesome. But anyways, so uh, I remember um, we, were at, we were at the hospital, and it was February 1st, 2022. And um, my, my wife was getting a checkup, and, and my wife's heart rate was, for some reason, for the last maybe or so week, wasn't really doing really well. And so we were going in like every other day just to see, you know, how she was doing and the baby and things like that. And I remember um, we're sitting there and, and she goes, all right, Chelsea, um, your, your heart rate did come back a little high. Um, I had something with like magnesium levels and I don't know, all this medical jargon. And she says, so um, uh, if it's all right with you guys, we're going to plan on delivering uh, today. And I was like, duh, I wasn't ready for this. You know, like, like, I wasn't like prepped for this. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I'm about to be a dad, like, now, like, this is, like, it's, you know, like, I'm, I'm obviously not pregnant, <laughs> um, but, you know, like, when you're married and your wife is pregnant, it's just kind of like, you're kind of detached from the child. I mean, you can kind of, you know, like, she, your, your wife, her stomach is growing. You can sometimes see the baby move and things like that. But, like, it's not, you're not carrying the child, and so you're kind of, you know, you're separate and kind of detached from it, right? And then all of a sudden, like, it became real. Like, my wife is going to deliver my daughter. Like, and so I'm like, okay, so we had to come home and kind of prep the house and all that, and, and then we, uh, we get back to, to the hospital, and, uh, and so my wife is pushing for, I don't know, 12 or so hours, which is a, just sounds like a horrific experience, right? And so finally, um, she comes in, the doctor, and she says, all right, Chelsea, you've been pushing for a really long time, and um, we haven't really seen any progress in the last few hours, and so um, I think we're going to have to, and before she said the word, my wife just turns over and says, a C-section? And she said it in this voice that just broke me. Like, I was like, now here's in my mind what I thought a C-section was. 
So gentlemen and ladies, maybe this will, this will help you out, they don't pull out your guts and throw them on a table, all right? So what I thought was they like saw open your stomach and they're sort of like putting out, you know, like your intestines like sausages, you know, and like your stomach over here, your heart, your lung, you know, your brain, whatever, right? Like, and then they're like, you know, they like vacuum the kid. I don't know what I thought, right? But that's what I thought. I thought my wife is going to die in this hospital. That's what's going through my mind, right? And, and so I had to hold her hand and, and the doctor goes, no, like she goes, sweetheart, why, why, why are you crying? Like, like I've done, you know, like 10,000 of them or something like that, right? Like, you're in capable hands, and it's not that dangerous of a procedure. I don't know if she's lying to us, but I'm like, preach it, you know, and, uh, or whatever. And uh, she, she's holding my wife's hand, and my, my wife just turns over to me, and she goes, I'm going to have a C-section. And I'm just sitting there with her. It's such a crazy, intense, you know, like, like my adrenaline's pumping. And I'm like, it's going to be okay, sweetheart. And then I look out the window, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, like, like I'm like trying to like keep it up for her, and I'm like on the verge of just like breaking down myself. Like, I haven't had one of these moments where I was about to lose it. You know, I was like, and we're in Newport and Hogue, and so I'm just like looking at the sunset. I was like, <laughs> like Lord, like, you know. And so finally, um, they're like, all right, uh, Matt, you get to come in the operating room. And I was like, What? Like, okay, you know, like, and so they're like, all right, you need to, you know, you need to gown up. And so I'm straight up in this whole, like, I look like I'm, I'm about to perform it, you know, like I'm about to surgery. And so uh, she gets, you know, in, in a gown and gloves and this and mask and all this other type of stuff and face shield and whatever. And, uh, and so they're like, all right, we're going to bring her in the room first and we're going to count all of the, you know, the medical equipment and stuff like that. And then we'll invite you dad in. And so I, uh, I, I, I'm just sitting in this room going like, oh my God, it's like, oh my God, right? This is just a crazy experience, right? Like, this is not what I expected, you know? And finally they come in, hey dad, you wanna come in? I'm like, yes, I wanna come in, right? So I, I, I make it into this room, this clean room, right? It has, um, it's like, it has this massive air purifier that we're around that's like purifying the air as they're about to do the surgery and she got all these bright lights. My, my wife had turned on worship music and there was some cringy song like, uh, what's that song? It's like Bending Beneath the, like Heaven Meets Earth, like an unforeseen, that was the song I was playing. I was like, change this, you know? And, uh, uh, like, I want some reckless love or something, you know? Anyways, uh, and so the doctor comes over, and uh, she starts the procedure. And my wife is convulsing because of all of the, uh, the medication she's on. She's like this. And, like, I walk in the room, and she's, like, seizing. And I'm like, what is happening, right? And so I come over to her, and, and uh, I, I start talking to her. And all of a sudden, um, the doctor's like, would you like to see? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't like this, you know? Because they have this massive gown that's over. And so they have an angle, and I'm just seeing them pull this child out of my wife's stomach. And I'm just like, this is, like, I'm about to, I'm about to faint. You know, like, that's what's about to happen. And uh, as they're pulling uh, my daughter out, I'm just paying attention to my wife, like, just stay with me, you know, stay with me. And finally, I just hear this crying. I'm like, who left the baby in this room? Like, well, why, why is there a child here, right? And they're like, that's your kid. I was like, oh, yeah. And so they're like, would you like to cut the umbilical cord? I was like, I don't, sure, you know? I cut it, and it's just kind of this, this whole crazy um, experience. So finally, they give me Noel, which, by the way, was the first baby I've ever held in my life. And they're like, all right, Dad, go walk the halls while we, we work on Mom. I'm like, uh, you know? So I'm like walking down the hall with my child, holding a baby for the very first time, which is my baby, right? And finally, they bring my wife out, and, and, it, and um, all has ended up well. Now, this last uh, 13, 14 or so uh, months have been some of my, like, my favorite months of my life. I'll be honest, it's one of the quickest. I don't know, does anyone else have kids here? Perfect, yeah, so it's just two of us, basically. Um, kids are incredible, and they, they change your life dramatically, right? And for me, it's been, I, I would say that children are a gift, and they have the capacity to change your life for, for, for good, for, for, for the better. But I'll tell you what, being a parent is a lot of work, right? Like, I, I have to feed my child, bathe my child, I have to clothe my child, clean up all of her dirty diapers, um, I have to carry my child, make all of her appointments, and make all of her problems basically my problems, right? In fact, without me, nothing happens in Noelle's life, nothing, or, 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 my, or my wife, um, Nothing happens in her life, and the truth is she'll, she won't even grow if we don't give her the food that's needed. Nothing will happen in her life. In fact, when you first have a child, they do something interesting. You go to the doctor's office like every month, 
and then every three months. And the reason that they schedule these, these consecutive doctor appointments is to check the child's growth and development for the simple reason that the child is supposed to grow. It's, it's, it's not just expected, it's necessary for life. See, we see this reality when it comes to the physical world, but we also should expect this exact same truth for the spiritual world as well. When someone is born again, we should see and expect spiritual growth in their life. And if we don't see someone growing and they're professing faith in Jesus Christ and they have been reading their, their Bibles and they come to church, but nothing is growing in their life, they're, no, they're not becoming more faithful, more loving, more like Jesus, then something is going on. I mean, let me give, me, me give you an example, right? What is natural for a baby should eventually become unnatural for an adult. What is natural for a baby should eventually become unnatural for an adult. Can you imagine walking into a restaurant, seeing a mother hold their teenage son, giving them a bottle? That, that would be, that would, there'd be something that would indicate that there was something wrong in the development of that kid. There's probably something wrong in the development of that mother, right? That's not normal behavior, right? See, what's natural for a baby is to be fed. But what is natural for an adult is to be a self-feeder. This is important for where we're about to head. Over the years, I've heard tons of people as a pastor, and I've been here for 12 or 13 years, um, say that they're leaving our church, leaving Seacoast, because they are not, quote, being fed. And whenever I hear a young adult or anyone say, I'm leaving Seacoast, I'm not being fed, I kind of just smile at them. That's not, the, that's not normally, they think I'm a psychopath. Like, I'm leaving, I'm like, I just start smiling, you know. And that's because it gives me a clear indication of their spiritual maturity. They're an infant. Because they're expecting someone else to be the, the person that feeds them, that grows them, right? They can barely hold the bottle of their development and are still fully dependent upon another for their growth. See, before we move on on this point, I want to point out one reality that's important in our growth. New life demands new growth. New life demands new growth. And the truth is, you and I, we will never experience new life if you're not growing in your faith. I'll give you another example. My daughter is, uh, is currently learning to walk, and it's the funniest thing. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid learn to walk, but um, you stand on one side of the house or wherever it is, and, and they'll get up, and they always look like drunk, tipsy, you know, college people, right? And so they're like, you know, like she's like trying to, and she's locking eyes at me, and, and she's like trying to get her body to where I am, right? And so she's learning, and, and she's like, her, her, her legs, it's just, it's just hilarious to see, right? And so I think so far, she's maybe gone five, six, seven, or eight steps, right? Maybe she's walked the length of this stage or so, right? And... Uh, one thing she's gotten really good at is standing. Like, she'll just, like, I'll walk in the room, she'll just be standing. She's like, and then she'll, like, point. But she, like, this is how she points. She really is. And another thing she's gotten really good at is dancing. I don't know why. She just started this, uh, like, last week. I'll go, Noelle. And I'll go, she goes, like, she just starts dancing. It's, like, the funniest, the cutest little thing, right? Um, another thing she's gotten really good at is she's learned to climb on her couch, which is going to get her, and she's going to get hurt, right? But she, like, somehow, she has this little, like, little pillow chair that we've got. She brings it over to the couch. She's brilliant, and she'll crawl up that and then crawl up the couch, right, and start touching with candles and a bunch of other things she's not supposed to be touching. Another thing she's got really, really good at is grabbing things off the table, like my coffee, which she spilt this morning. There's a bunch of random other things, right? But it's so awesome to see her grow because she's getting to interact with new things, right, and even go to new places, and is even giving a new vantage point to see her ever-changing little world. See, six months ago, my daughter's life was so much smaller than it was today, and truthfully, she got to experience less of what life has to offer than she does today. What's the difference between my daughter six months ago and today? The answer is simple. It's growth. Her maturity restricted her. This is pivotal for what Paul is about to teach us. Her maturity restricted her abilities. Growth has freed her from crawling through life to walking through life. Growth has freed my daughter from crawling through life to learning to walk through it. Let me ask you a question. 
Could it be that the reason many of us aren't experiencing the new life that God promises us, and many of us may feel like we're just crawling through life and all of its difficulties, is because we stopped growing some time ago? Sometime in your development, back when you were in high school, when you first gave your life to Christ or whatever it was and you got into college, and, and you stopped your development there and then. Now, you think you're further along than you actually are because of your age, but you're still an infant. Or you're still way over here in your spiritual maturity when you actually have convinced yourself you're over here. I mean, you may know more about God now than you did a year ago, but truthfully, there could be some of us that love him less today than we did when we first met him. You may know more of scripture today than you did then, but you're less faithful to what you know today than you were then. See, the truth is not, every, not all growth is forward, and not every Christian is growing in their relationship with Jesus. And so Paul today is going to teach us what it looks like to grow as he teaches us the three essentials every Christian needs to experience, the new life that God has promised and God has for you. I want to remind you guys really quick, I'm not, I'm not really doing sermons as I am kind of just exegetical teaching. You're going to break up into groups in maybe 15 or 20 minutes, that's a lie, 30 minutes, hopefully 20 minutes, um, to kind of build the application. But if you have any questions, any stuff we're about to hop into, we're only doing five verses today. There's a number on the top right of your, uh, your piece of paper when you got here today. Text in any questions you have. I'm going to try my very best to answer. So here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're doing a little bit of exegetical teaching, see what Paul's teaching us about these three realities of what it looks like for you to experience the new life that God has for you. It says this, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So last week, Rob spoke, and the week after that, or the week before that, it was me, and, and, and we were kind of talking about this, this idea. This is kind of a recap, just really quick. Now, we learned over the last handful of weeks that when you become a Christian, you become a new person in Christ. However, your body doesn't change, right? You still have a mortal body that's subject to sickness and sin and death, which means that you and I still sin. Like, you didn't become a Christian and 100% become perfect. No longer were addicted to alcohol, porn, whatever it was. Rather, you said yes to Jesus and you start developing a heart that wants what he wants, but you're still carrying a lot of this baggage. This is the process of sanctification. Sanctification, you've heard it maybe said, the process of becoming like Christ. I think an easier way to understand it is the process of becoming more faithful to God's word, his revealed word. The truth is you already know how you probably should be living. And so sanctification is the process, the conforming of your life to what God has already said about human sexuality, about purpose, about love, about X, Y, or Z, right? And so this is this tension that we talked about in Romans 6 a month ago or whatever, where you, you, you are a believer, you have a new nature that's added, one that has a desire to please God. And then you have this other nature on this side, this sin nature that kind of wants to be self-egotistical, self-centered. It wants to separate you from God. It wants to bring you back into enslavement of your old habits and addictions and, and thought patterns and friend groups and whatever it is. And so the believers at constant war with your sin nature and what the Bible calls a divine nature. I'm going to talk about that because I want to redefine it. I talked about this six weeks ago or so. The divine nature in no sense of the way means at any point you become God. I'm not, we don't teach Mormonism around here, right? At no sequence of events in your faith and your relationship with God do you ever become God. The divine nature that um, a theologian coined, is that rather you now have a nature added onto you if you are a believer in Christ where you want to conform to what God's will is for your life. We're going to get to that next week in Romans 8.29. Um, Romans 8.28, for the God works for the good of those who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord, Romans 8.29, who are called or are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, right? And so there's this tension, right, where you, you are a sinner yet a simultaneously a saint, 
And while that is still true, what we've discovered over the last handful of weeks is that God has freed you, rather, from three things. Number one, he has freed you from the power of sin. Theoretically speaking, if you are abiding in God's word and you are leaning into the Spirit's power and not your own, we should not be addicted to things any longer. And I've heard miraculous stories. I had a buddy that used to come to young adults, and uh, he was a heroin addict for years. Met Jesus one night while he was high, woke up the next morning, and had no chemical addiction. Like, that's a radical transformation. He, in that moment, was completely freed from the power of sin over his life. But then I know other people have been followers of Jesus their entire life, or for at least a large percent of their adulthood, and they're some of my, my guy friends, and they're still enslaved to porno- pornography. And so this is the idea that when, that when uh, we are, God gives us his spirit, he does free you from the power of sin. You just need to lean into the spirit's power, not your own. We're going to talk a little bit more in a second. So the first, you're freed from the power of sin. Number two, the penalty of sin, the power and the penalty. The penalty is that as a follower of Jesus, if you sin, you are still legally declared right in God's eyes. Why? Because Jesus got the wrath so you can get the love. He took 100% of your sin upon him on that cross. And so he got the wrath of God so you could experience the love of God. It would be unjust for him to punish, for God the Father to punish Jesus and simultaneously you. So here's what this means. If you are a Christian and you mess up, you watch something, you mess up with your girlfriend, whatever it may be, what you need to understand is that you are still in the family of God. You don't lose your salvation. Now, that's another sermon, but you don't lose your salvation, right? Um, I'll give you an example. If I sin against my wife, um, I lie to her or, or whatever it is, right? At the end of the day, am I still married to her? The answer is yes. I'm now just relationally distant. And now, to the act of repentance, I need to acknowledge what I did was wrong and seek and ask for her forgiveness to be close and reconciled once again. That is exactly what it's like when a believer sins. You are still married in a covenant. You are still connected to God. But rather, you're now relationally distant, and you need to repent, and so you can draw once near each other again. God has freed you from the, uh, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and one day he'll free us from the presence of sin forever. The power, the penalty, and the presence. The power, the penalty, and the presence. That is the good news of Scripture, that God has freed you from the power of sin, so you can actually live a new life. Number two, that from the penalty of it, that you will not, uh, uh, Romans 8, 1 uh, Rob talked about this a lot. There is now, no, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Let me say this again because this is important for you to understand. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Don't allow people or even Satan to be an archaeologist in your life. To start pulling up your past, to start pulling up things you did, things you said. When, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future, right? Your past is dead with Jesus, it's buried there. Don't dig it up. You know how silly it would be to try to bring a dead person to court and make a dead person serve a jail sentence? No, they're dead. Death has freed them from the penalty of them breaking the law. One of the beauties of the symbolism of baptism is that you're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that your old life is now hidden and gone, and all of the things that you've done, or done and did are dead. So when you come to experience a new life, you're freed from all of the stuff that happened in your past. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the presence of sin. You know, week after week, I, uh, I probably like say things like, oh, today is a pivotal message. Like, you need to understand this to grow in your faith. And as I was thinking about that this last week, as I was studying for this talk, I realized that either I've been lying to you or I've been misspeaking, because today is probably one of the most foundational, most important things that you and I could discover about 
scripture that could radically change your relationship with God. It's one of the most important things you and I could possibly grasp. I've been reading a book by a guy named J.I. Packer. He's a theologian, and the book is entitled Knowing God. There's a quote that I grabbed from his book that I want to share with you guys I thought was so insightful. It says this. It says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator, in the same way you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very, uh, very well at all. For everything that Christ taught us, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that's distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So, J.I. Packer, the theologian, is telling us the totality of the New Testament teaching and the revelation that can change your life more than anything, and it truly makes Christianity Christianity and distinctly Christian and not just Jewish, is the fatherhood of God. The idea that the Son of God himself can enable you and I to become children of God, giving you and I a new identity. This is super important. We're going to spend a lot of time here. In Romans 8, 14, Paul said this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are, I want you to highlight this in your Bible, sons of God. See, what I want you to see here is that what Paul is saying is for those of us that have given over our lives to Jesus Christ, that you are completely and you have 100% a new identity as a child of God. Now, you've heard it probably taught incorrectly that all people are children of God, that God loves all people. That's not necessarily true. Yes, it is true that God is omnibenevolent, all good and all loving. However, and I've given this illustration before, I love, I love kids, but how much more do I love my own daughter? Yes, I, I want the well-being of all children, one of the reasons that we support Royal Family Kids Camp and things like that, but how much more am I preoccupied about the protection and the provision of my daughter than other daughters and sons? Unequivocally, I care more about my daughter because she's my child. All people are created by God, but not all people are children of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I guess the question is, what does it mean for you and I in this room to be a child of God? Well, truthfully, I think it means a lot that we're not going to be able to get to all of it today, but for the sake of time, let me give you an illustration I heard a pastor use um, that I think kind of brought some clarity in understanding this reality. The pastor has a story of a guy named Billy Graham. Now, if you don't know who Billy Graham is, you didn't really know, grow up in church or whatever. Billy Graham was one of the, probably the single most famous event, uh, I was like, preacher. Um, he spoke to crowds of like hundreds of thousands all over the world for the last like 50, 60 or so years, like probably the most famous preacher in Christianity other than Paul and probably Jesus, right? And he passed away a handful of years ago, but the pastor shares this really interesting story um, of, of while he was still alive and as his health is declining and before he passed away, um, that he moved to North Carolina. His daughter, Annie, shares a story about people coming up all the time and surprise visit him that didn't know him, like had no relationship with him. And they would drive up the long driveway and come to the gate, and, they, and she wrote this. They would knock on the gate and say, hey, Billy, we've read all your books, watched all your shows, and wanted to come talk to you. And she says that her father would say, mind you, he's sick, I don't know you, and you're not a member of my family. Even more, you've not made any arrangements to come to me, so I can't let you in. And then Annie then shares this story. She says, then when she drives up the same driveway and knocks on the gate, she says, Dad, this is Annie, I've come home. The gate is thrown wide open. She goes inside because she is her father's child. And she says, although he's a lot of things to a lot of people, to me, he's dad. See, her identity changes everything. It places her on a completely different footing with her father, and she has complete access to him always. One of my favorite pastors and authors, a guy named Tim Keller, 
And uh, he has uh, this quote that I love. He says, who's the only person that can wake up a king at 3 o'clock in the morning for a glass of water? I mean, a servant, someone that works for him? Absolutely not. The only person that can wake a king up that has sovereign and absolute authority to wake a king up at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask him to get them a glass of water is their children. And then he says, you and I have that type of access to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords, to God himself. See, this is the reality for a Christian. Father is now the name by which you call God, and God, the creator of everything, begins to think everything of you. Right? That he now has a heart to protect you, provide for you, care for you, because he now has a fatherly concern for you. This is truly, more than anything else that I could communicate to you, probably the, the greatest privilege the gospel offers us. I mean, it's even greater than God offering you and I his forgiveness. I want you to think maybe of it this way. We could be, for, be forgiven by God, but would not necessarily mean that God likes and loves us. Think of it this way, right? A judge can pardon you, but it doesn't mean that he has to like you. In fact, a judge could set you free and still absolutely hate you. The story of the gospel is that God doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He does something unbelievable. He brings us into his family and becomes our father. Like, do you know how like, crazy this is? Like, there is no other religion that allows you and I this type of access, that even, that even promises this type of access, indicates this type of access, brings, brings to light that you could have this type of relationship with the sovereign authority that governs all things. I mean, that, like... Jesus is the only religious figure in human history to address God and to teach you and I that we can address God as Father. The next thing that Paul really wants to communicate to you and I is that an identity is only life-changing if you can experience the new life that comes with it. And so the first thing that he wants you to know is that you can have a new identity in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about this. You can become a child of God. But number two, he also wants you to know that you can have a new experience. I want you to follow with me in verses 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. I want you to highlight that. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba, um, its greatest English equivalent in the Hebrew, it basically translates dad or papa. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. A few things here. In the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to continue their name and, in, and inherit really his estate. Now, under Roman adoption, the life and standing of the adopted child completely and wholly changed. The adopted son lost all rights of his old family and gained all new rights in being in his new family. And so the old life of the adopted son was completely wiped out, with all of his debts being canceled, with nothing from his past counting against them anymore. In other words, the adoptive was now a new person in a new family that could live a new life that wasn't infringed upon whatever they did in their past. So let me communicate it to you this way. I think I wrote this down on your piece of paper. Adoption frees you from your past to live a better future with your heavenly father. I heard a story uh, this last week of a man who owned a, a sheep ranch, and he couldn't make enough on his ranching operation to pay the mortgage. And um, so he's kind of in danger, really, of losing uh, his ranch and his property and the place that he's lived for 30 or so years. With little money for clothes or food, he had to eventually go and live on a government subsidy. Now, one day, there's a seismographic crew from an oil company that came into the area and told him that there might be oil on his land, and if they could give him a few days, 72 hours or so, to look. They asked for permission to drill a well, and he signed a lease and contract to give them the right to survey his land and try to find oil. A few days into their drilling, they found a huge oil reserve, and this farmer ended up becoming rich. 
Now, the truth is, the very day he purchased that land, 30 years before this, he actually did become rich, yet he'd been living poor. He was a multimillionaire living in poverty. What was his problem? Is that he didn't know how to tap into the wealth that was already there, even though it was already his. Here's my parallel. Could it be that there are many Christians who still live in spiritual poverty, even though they have access to the riches of God today? Let me rephrase the question. How many of us followers of Jesus still experience poverty within our value? Like, we are truly looking to other people to give us a sense of worth, a sense of, maybe it's our performance, maybe where we are, at what school we go to, how fast we're, we're finishing school, what classes that we can get in, what our GPA is, whatever, whatever, what, 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 how much I make per year, whatever it is. How many of us are still experiencing poverty within our value? How many of us still experience a poverty within our hope? I mean, that God could give you a better future, that God could rewrite your story. How many of us still experience poverty when it comes in our identities? How many of us believe the lie that life would be more if you had more, did more, and others thought more about you and of you? I mean, that really is the pattern of what this culture teaches you. It's that our culture says you are what you have and you're only worth what you can do. Let me ask you a question. What is your greatest temptation? To believe You are what you do, you are what you have, or you are what others think of you. Each one of us in this room, one of those threes, is your greatest temptation in life. I'm going to say this again. What is your greatest temptation? To believe you are what you do, you are what you have, and you are what others think of you. One of the most beautiful things about God being your father is allowing him to tell you who you are. In the ancient world, it was primarily the father of the household who got the the right to form uh, their family identity and even really name each child. In Jewish culture today, it's the father's sovereign, absolute right to name his children because in Jewish culture, not really in American culture, but Jewish culture, names implant identity and they give destiny. That's important. I'll give you an example. Um, Moses, for example. If you guys know what Moses' name in Hebrew translates to, saved from water. Now, that wasn't just a name given to him because he was plucked out of the water, if you know the story in Exodus 3 or Exodus 1 and 2, but rather it was a prophetic name that he was given to because he would save God's people by walking them through water 60 years later. Uh, We'll do another one, Mary. You guys know what Mary's name means? Wished for child. That's wild. Like, oh, oh boy, did she get one, right? See, names are important because they identify us, and that's why I've always found, I think, the story of Christmas and Jesus getting his name to be so fascinating. I shared this with you in our Christmas series in the month of December, but the verse I'm about to read to you is the story of an angel coming to Joseph and saying this, she will give birth to a son, talking about Mary, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I want you to notice that Joseph takes away, uh, I'm sorry, the angel takes away Joseph's ability to name his son. This is weird. This is like the right of a Jewish dad. I get to name my boy. The angel comes and says, you don't get to name him. And by refusing to let him name Jesus, the angel is essentially saying, you do not name him. He is to name you. He is to give you an identity. He is to give you a destiny. He is to give you a meaning. And he is to give you a purpose. And what this means is what you need most from Jesus and what I need most from Jesus is, is for him to name us so we don't spend our entire lives trying to make a name for ourselves. See, I think many of us, right, we live as if we don't have a name. We live as if we don't have a family. And we live as if God doesn't have a plan for us. Now, none of those are true, but rather we choose to live as spiritual orphans because the truth is you keep forgetting who you are. And so you truly do believe that you are the estimation of your GPA, your athletic ability, 
how pretty you are, how many people follow you, this, that, or the other thing. Because you are constantly, and we are constantly forgetting who we are. See, whether we are fearful, depressed, stressed, or uncertain, maybe we're confused about the future, whatever it is, I want to encourage you to ask God to help you remind yourself of who you are in him, or at least to make his love real for you so you don't need to go search for love in people, place, or performance. I ask all the time, right, God, remind me who I am in you, and then remind me that my sense of worth doesn't come from what I have, what I do, or even what other people think of me, but from you and you alone. So far in the last handful of verses, Paul spent a lot of time kind of talking about the present benefits of adoption, that it, that it gives you a new identity, being a child of God, and because of this new identity, you get to live and you get to experience a new type of life. But in our last verse for today, he kind of talks about the future. Every Christian has a new destiny. Three things. What does every Christian have? Number one, you have a new identity. Number two, you have a new experience. Number three, you have a new destiny. Follow with me in verse 17, our last one for today. It says this, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm going to do this one quick because it's going to kind of bring us into where we're going next week. But this verse simply speaks to where a Christian is going, and that's heaven. I want us to know that heaven is not a figment of your imagination, right? It's not the, the feeling or an emotion. It's not the beauty of somewhere else. It's a prepared place for prepared people. And if you are a follower of Jesus, your piece of it was prepared long ago. I think to really understand what heaven is like, you need to understand that heaven isn't so much a where as it is a proximity to a who. Because the where is good is because it's intimately connected to the who. And that is because heaven is where Jesus is. And we cannot speculate too much on what heaven will be like because not much is said, but there is much in scripture that's said about who Jesus is. Jesus has talked about being the author of all that is good, the author of life, the author of peace, the author of joy, the author of fulfillment, the author of laughter, all of this stuff. Which means that heaven is infinitely better than anything this world has to offer us. In fact, even when we allow our imaginations to run wild on what the joys of heaven may be like, we're going to find that our minds are incapable of conceiving what heaven will be like. And that is because the very God that created heaven begins where our imagination comes to an end. I've said this often, right? God is not bigger than you think. He's bigger than you can think. And so today, we can have confidence, right, that when you take your last breath on earth, and if you have family members that have passed away and they follow Jesus, that when they took their last breath on earth, they took their very first in heaven. Paul wants you to know and wants, wants every believer to know that they have a new identity, where they can garner a sense of worth and purpose from that identity that brings them into living a new type of experience that finally ends in a new destiny as God's adoptive children. See, I was thinking about, like, what is Paul really trying to communicate to us in these, seven, these five or so verses? And simply, it's the believer's benefit package. Like, I know a lot of people that pick certain jobs based off benefit package. How much do they pay for this, that, or the other thing? And what Paul is teaching us here is that Jesus is better than anything and everything, number one, you're tempted to leave him for, and then number two, anything this world has to offer. Quote that his benefit package is better. I don't want us to enter into this consumeristic mindset, but that, that's one of the things he's teaching us, that Jesus is better than anything and everything you're tempted to leave him for, and number two, better than anything this world has to offer, because he can give you a new identity that can stand the test of time and tragedy and all the other things that go on in this world, that you can experience a fuller type of life, and finally, you'll end up in a better destination. In that book I was telling you I was reading by J.A. Packer, the theologian, Knowing God, he has one kind of sentence or one rather paragraph that is set out to me that I want to read for you guys, and then I'll pray for you guys to get you guys in your groups. It says this, the immediate message to our hearts of what we have studied in the present chapter is surely this. By the way, he's talking about Romans 8. Do I as a Christian understand myself? 
Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home, and every day is one day nearer. Say it over and over to yourself first thing in the morning, last thing at night. As you wait for the bus, and anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as the one who knows it, utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy life. Yes, certainly, but we have something both higher and profounder to say. This is the Christian secret of a, this is the Christian secret of a, of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. May this secret, the idea that God can become your father, you can be grafted into his family, may this secret become fully yours and fully mine. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for you guys. I'll get you guys in those groups. Father, today I am thankful that no other worldview, no other religion that can address and gives us the clues that you are a good heavenly father. I realize for so many of us here today that when the word father comes up, they think of something endearing. They think of something positive. I realize for another segment of us, they think of something negative, that their father was abusive, that he, he was angry. And finally, for the last segment, there are people here that their father was absent. They wanted nothing more for a father to be present in their life. And when they think of a father, just bitterness and emptiness comes up. Father, I ask that, number one, we can learn that you are a good heavenly father that has good things for us. Like, we'll learn next week, Father, that you can work all things for the good of those of us who believe in you. And so, Lord, as we continue to journey in the scripture, I pray, Father, that our image of you would conform to its reality. Lord, we love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.